Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. So, Steve, did Ava Gardner and Howard Hughes have a good relationship? Well, they did until he dislocated her jaw. What? Well, don't worry. She hit him back with an ashtray. From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to Most Notorious. I'm Eric Rivenis, and so glad to be back with you. I've had requests since almost day one of this podcast for an episode on the subject we're about to cover. H.H. Holmes, one of the most famous murderers in American history, a fascinating, disturbing, terrible character who has enthralled readers of Eric Larson's Devil in the White City for years and has been the subject of many documentaries and books. And I've got the author of one of the best of these books here with me now. My guest today is a man of many talents, Adam Selzer. He's written young adult fiction books and also worked as a tour guide and ghost investigator in Chicago. But we're going to be discussing his meticulously researched and voluminous biography of H.H. Holmes called H.H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil. Thank you so much for your time. Sure. So what originally drew you to H.H. H. Holmes? I wish I had a better answer here. Really, it was a fairly mercenary thing as I was working for a ghost tour company that wanted to start doing Devil in the White City tours. And the problem I had with it was Devil in the White City, most of the Chicago stuff takes place in one or two locations. There wasn't really much to base a tour around. Uh, so I started digging in the newspaper archives, trying to find more stories about the guy that I could tell, and realized, uh, A, just how much ink was spilled over this guy, how many sources there are that have been completely ignored over the years. And I kept finding more and more of them for years. And also just finding out how different the story was, uh, how, how different what really happened was from uh, the way we now remember the story. So I'd, I'd love to go back to the beginnings of Holmes' life. Uh, where was he born, and what was his life like as a young man? He was born in a small country town in New Hampshire. By all accounts, it was a fairly normal childhood. You know, there are a couple of incidents of him uh, borrowing money and cheating people. Um, almost the inevitable report that he seemed to keep mostly to himself. 
But uh, by all accounts, he was a pretty good kid. Uh, his life was basically normal. Went to school, uh, hung out with the girls in the village. So his real name was Herman Mudgett. C- could you talk about Mudgett's apprenticeship under Dr. Wright? Dr. Uh, Nahum White. Yeah, well, his his uncle Reuben had studied under a doctor named Nahum White before he went off to be a surgeon in the Civil War. Um, I think he moved away after that, so I don't know how much young Herman would have ever met the guy. But essentially, he decided he was interested in medicine as well, and also started apprenticing under uh, Dr. Nahum White, along with a couple of other people. Um, Dr. Nahum White, is probably worth pointing out, was a notable advocate of human dissection, back at a time when that wasn't exactly legal. Now, any doctor worth his salt was an advocate of human dissection at the time, but it was uh, it, it took it was really something to be outspoken about. And he was uh, even in, back in the 1840s, he was noted for having a really slick collection of uh, morbid anatomical specimens. Uh, he had his own dissection room for himself and his students. This is absolutely necessary for training doctors, um, but in those days, actually getting your hands on a body probably involved a little bit of grave robbing. So, can you talk about his first marriage? who it was to, and how it went. Yeah, he uh, married a woman named Clara Lovering when he was 17. He told the census man he was a few years older than that when he came by. This was the kind of guy who almost was the guy who would lie to the census man. Um, they had a son named Robert together. Uh, he, she, he worked for a while in her father's store, but he just didn't like it very much. Eventually, uh, started went up to Burlington, Vermont, to attend medical lectures for a while. Then eventually uh, moved Clara and his uh, son out to Ann Arbor so he could attend the University of Michigan there. Now, they all lived in a boarding house. Clara took in sewing to pay all of the bills, but it wasn't a particularly happy marriage. From what we know from accounts of other people who lived in the boarding house with them, they would hear them fighting all the time. They'd see Clara walking around with black eyes. And eventually, a while before he was supposed to graduate, she just took Robert and moved back to New Hampshire and only saw him occasionally thereafter. What was his his personality like in his early years? He was considered by many to be pretentious, right? Uh, depends on who you ask. The other, he was uh, he was kind of seen as pretentious around New Hampshire, I think. Outside of New Hampshire, once he got to Ann Arbor, he kind of seemed like more of a backwoods hick to people. And so it kind of depends on which account you're going by. By all accounts, people, uh, the ladies found him charming. We get report after report of things like that. But his other colleagues at the medical school were distinctly unimpressed by him. That is an interesting point that you make in your book. Uh, in his days as a, as a medical student, his classmates thought he wasn't so smooth around members of the opposite sex, but his charm seemed to increase later on. <laughs> yeah. He seemed to do pretty well even at the school, too. There, there was a whole thing. He had gotten involved in a breach of promise suit. Um, he had, was carrying on an affair with this uh, woman. They called her a grass widow, which uh, usually meant that her husband was still alive. But he said that he was going to marry her, presumably just to get her into bed. Uh, then proceeded not to marry her. She launched a breach of promise suit. He had to go up and defend himself against all the professors, uh, saying that, you know, it's all not true, to keep from being expelled. And after graduation, he went off right to one of the professors who had uh, voted to acquit him and said, so by the way, doctor, those stories that woman said about me were true. Hey, can I have a letter of recommendation? (laughs) Yeah. He did not get the letter of recommendation. I had to chuckle at that part. 
So, so once he leaves his wife, he starts to make his way west. Can you tell us about the next series of events in his life? Well, he went back. He went back east for a while. He ended up uh, practicing medicine upstate New York for a little while, and getting involved in some kind of swindle involving hoarding vaccines or something like that, and borrowing money that he never paid back. Uh, as soon, really, as soon as he got out of college, he started getting involved in various swindles. Um, at some point, he had a, briefly had a job in Norristown, Pennsylvania, working at an insane asylum. Then somewhere along the line, he drifted to Minnesota, where he met the woman who would be his next wife. And from there to Chicago in 1886. So what what drew him to Chicago? You know, it's difficult to say. It was just kind of the place to be in those days, I think. It was uh, about 15 years after the great Chicago fire had leveled the city. Chicago has a a reputation as a place to be. He'd apparently visited about a year before and and I guess was really impressed by it. It was hard to tell. The story that he told about going in 1885 was almost certainly not exactly true. Uh, the story he told was that it was right around the time they found some bones buried in the basement of his building in Chicago in 1895. And he said, oh, well, here's what happened. 1885, my friends and I had this big plan that we were going to defraud an insurance company with phony bodies. So I went to, my job was to go to Chicago and get a couple of the bodies. So I went to a hotel there. I got a couple of bodies from the medical school, chopped them up in a, and put them in a barrel in the hotel, then rolled that barrel out to the Fidelity storage warehouse the next morning. But then we chickened out on the plan, so the bodies just languished in storage for a while until I built my new building and buried them in the basement. So that's what you found. <laughs> and nobody believed it then either. <laughs> so, so it's a fascinating story about how he establishes himself in Chicago. And he starts by befriending a couple who owns a drugstore. Now, this is interesting because your story diverges here from Devil in the White City. Can, can you explain what you were able to discover through your research and how it differs from what we've typically been taught? Oh, sure. Yeah, so this is something that's been going around in, uh, in Holmes' writing for a long time, is the, our basic idea of what we think about H.H. H. Holmes today comes from uh, Herbert Asbury's chapter about him, which is, uh, the, the book is now called Gangs of Chicago. Originally, it was called uh, Gem of the Prairie. He's got a whole chapter where he kind of takes all of the tabloid and pulp versions of the Holmes story and adds in a few bits from his own imagination. Having been through the old newspapers, Asbury would have known that for a while Holmes worked in Dr. Holmes Drugstore. Um, very little data was about that is really available in the old newspapers. There's just a couple of mentions of it. Um, but the way that Asbury told the story, young Holmes had uh, gotten the job in Dr. Holton's pharmacy down on 63rd Street. They, this, according to his story, Dr. Holton was an old man who was slowly dying of cancer up above the store. Uh, old, poor old Mrs. Holton was trying to haplessly run the place herself, though she had no idea how to run a drugstore. And shortly thereafter, Holmes became owner of the place, and Dr. and Mrs. Holton were never seen again. Holmes told everybody they had moved off to California or something. And that's uh, the the story that Asbury told has been accepted as fact by really uh, every Holmes writer for the next seventy five years after that. It was uh, it's in Devil in the White City. It's in all the major Holmes biographies. Uh, you know they, they differ a little bit in the details of the telling, um, but the fact that Holmes uh, killed Doctor E. S. Holton and his wife is pretty much a given in all of them. Um, 
when I was researching this, I noticed that in the 1895 articles when they were first really investigating the guy, they were ready to accuse Holmes of having murdered anybody they hadn't seen around the neighborhood in a couple of weeks. Um, like, hey, remember that Kate Durkee woman who used to hang around the castle? Haven't seen her in a while. I bet she's been murdered. Then it would turn out she's alive and well and living in Omaha. <laughs> And But nobody was talking about the Holtons in those articles. And that kind of got me curious, because I figured if they, if they were really missing, somebody should have been looking for them. Right. Now, all we really had to go on was some city directories saying that it was uh, Dr. E.S. Holton's pharmacy. Um, so I finally found this national medical directory that, without Google Books, I probably never would have found this thing any more than any other previous Holmes writer uh, I was ever able to. Um, but this national medical directory listed every doctor who was in practice in the country, and it finally gave me what the ES stood for, which turned out to be Elizabeth Sarah. Uh, Dr. E.S. Holton was not an old man. It was a young. She was a young woman. She was only a couple of years older than Holmes. She'd been at the University of Michigan about a year before he was there. So they, she pre probably knew her through mutual friends. It wasn't just a random coincidence that put him into the place. Um, by all accounts, she did get the money from buying it. She and her husband both lived well into the 20th century. I've got, I've got a selfie at their graves. So he, he's off the hook for those ones. So once he settles down in this drugstore, he begins on a series of organized swindles that are so dang creative. And, and each one tops the one before it. Can you explain how he was making money through these crazy schemes? Yeah. Well, there's a lot of this is, is uh, only fairly sparsely documented, but it appears that the uh, first thing he did upon coming to possession of the drugstore was starting to sell what he called was Linden Grove Mineral Water. Linden Grove was the name of the neighborhood on real estate plats. Um, he said this was apparently some kind of really fancy... Uh, water with healing power that he was selling at the drugstore. It was apparently selling pretty well until somebody realized it was just regular lake water that he maybe colored with some kind of blue coloring or something. Uh, he said he had an artisan well down in the ba or an artesian well down in the basement that was drinking this out of some kind of mysterious mineral spring, which was not a particularly uncommon kind of plot in those days. People were uh, making all kinds of claims about uh, mineral waters and spring and magnetic wells down in the ground that would give you all kinds of uh, all kinds of, that would cure whatever ailed you. Uh, he just did it fairly well for a while. Uh, at the same time, he. Um, it's, it's a very difficult to figure out what happened exactly with this, but he had some kind of scheme going on where he was defrauding the gas company. He was uh, telling people that he found this way to turn ordinary water into gas, and he built this thing that looked like a washing machine on stilts. And what it looked like was he would feed water into the place, and it would turn into heating gas. Really, he had just rigged the thing up to the regular gas main. Uh, so he was really just pouring in water and then pumping out gas from the regular gas mains, but he managed to uh, trick everybody up to and including the gas company with this. And according to one of his lawyers, he started getting investors investing in this invention of his and made thousands and thousands of dollars. So perhaps his, his greatest scheme was, was building uh, what is understood in, in Holmes' mythology to be a hotel, and we can talk about that in a minute. But but it's known by name now as the murder castle. But but he builds this thing without actually paying for it. C can you explain how he gets away with this? Well, somewhere along the line, he bought the parcel of land across the street from that drugstore. This would have been early 1887. 
Uh, he'd only been working at the drugstore for a few months by then, but he bought this parcel of land across the street, hired a couple of architects and an iron company to put up a one- or two-story building there. And through all sorts of various tricks, he managed not to pay for it. Um, he ended up, we, know, we know about this because he got he, they eventually got sued. There's a lot of paperwork documenting the construction of this place. Apparently, one of the I-beams that they sent for uh, building the place was about a foot too short, which, according to him, made the entire contract null and void. And they were able to fix the whole thing, but he decided the contract was null, never made a payment on it, also never paid the architects, claimed that they hadn't really done their jobs, and meanwhile had also transferred the ownership over to his mother-in-law, over to his new wife. Um, he, he changed the ownership on the place so much that reading, looking over the uh, property records is like watching a fast-change artist at work. Uh, the reason for this is when somebody came to try to repossess something from him, you can say, well, I don't actually own it, so you can't repossess anything from me. I don't have anything. Look around. And over and over in the back of the court summons, it'll say uh, no property found to repossess. So so tell us about the construction of this building, would you? How, how it was designed and what it was used for. Well, in the first story, you had uh, most was uh, mostly retail space. There was a drugstore that Holmes operated himself for a while. There was a restaurant, and then along Wall Street, there was a rotating cast of businesses like uh, a tin shop, a candy shop, a cigar shop. You know what, what you'd see in a modern strip mall. The second floor was apartments. He lived in one himself. There was a doctor named Maurice Lawrence who lived in one with his family. Um, the Connors, when they moved in, lived there for a while. We've got, we've got a pretty good list of who lived there at, the, at various times. Uh, there were a couple of hidden passages. There was a secret staircase in the back that led down to the basement, which was really not much more than an unfinished basement. And then there was like a hidden compartment in between the second and first floor uh, at the back of the drugstore. Uh, we, we would call it a hidden room, but it's not really. It wasn't so hidden that everybody who worked there didn't know about the place. It was a, uh, it was a. There was a staircase that led from a trap door in the bathroom in one of the upstairs apartments uh, down into this uh, down into the basement area. Plus, you could crawl into this secret compartment in between the first and second floor, which you people people knew about it. The drug clerks used to sleep there all the time. But there, but there were some hidden rooms and secret passages. You've mentioned the Connor family, and I'd like to ask you about them. Ned Connor, his wife Julia, and their daughter Pearl. Can you talk about how he met them and how his relationship with the family developed over time? Sure. Now, Ned Connor came into the castle looking for work in uh, about September of 1889. He and his family, his uh, wife Julia and their toddler daughter Pearl, had uh, just moved in from a small town in Iowa someplace. I think Ned was kind of a small town boy at heart. He lived in small towns before. And after the whole thing with Holmes, he went back to living in small towns after that. I think maybe Julia was the one who wanted to move to the city. But he went into the castle looking for work, having heard that that might be a good place. He worked as a jeweler by trade. He talked to Holmes over in the barbers was getting him, and Holmes said, all right, you're hired. So Ned moved in and started running the jewelry place. Uh, he and his um, wife and daughter moved into the apartments upstairs. That was part of the deal. But very shortly thereafter, Ned and Julia began having problems. They'd probably always been having problems. But now, Holmes started having an affair with Julia. And apparently fairly openly, too. So eventually, Ned and Julia had a big fight. Ned said, okay, we'll stay married for a couple of extra weeks. But we'll pick a certain day, and at that day, you go your way, I'll go mine. So Ned, Julia and Pearl stayed in the castle. Ned moved out of the place and uh, ended up working at A.J. Lippincott's jewelry store up in the Loop. 
But Holmes would still see him from time to time. He would, like, pop in on jewelry store business or uh, to get him involved in other various swindles and schemes that he was always trying to get him involved in. And now and then he would talk about Julia, and we don't know exactly what he said, but at one meeting he said something to Ned that he would about Julia that he wouldn't have known unless he'd been sleeping with her. We can only kind of use our imaginations as to what it might have been. Uh, Julia and Pearl uh, kept on living in the castle building for about two years after that. They were last seen on Christmas of 1891. They were supposed to be going to Davenport for Julia's sister's wedding, but they never showed up for the wedding and were never seen alive again. And what did Holmes claim happened to them? Uh, later, when he was, he wrote several different confessions at different times uh, towards the end of his life. He was fairly consistent in saying that Julia died during an abortion. And Pearl would probably have been killed by poison after that. I'd like to ask you about Emmeline Sigrand as well. Yeah, em- Emmeline moved into, uh, moved in, uh, took over Julia's old job at the castle in 1892, about five months afterwards. I don't think she ever actually lived at the castle. Uh, she lived in a series of rooming houses around there. Now, while she was in town for the uh, six months or so she was in Chicago, she was having an affair with somebody. She uh, talked about or this secret fiancé that she had to a couple of her girlfriends. Uh, the weird thing is that no two people got the same name of the guy. It's, uh, fairly, I think it's, it's fairly obvious that it was Holmes, and that most likely she knew that he was married and she had to be secretive about it. She kind of she kinda acts like a, a young woman with a secret at the time. Uh, so she was having an affair, presumably with Holmes. Then December of 1892, uh, Holmes told everybody, oh, what do you know? Emmeline ran off and got married to some guy named Robert Phelps. Uh, next day he showed up with a, a couple of printed wedding announcements that he had probably printed up himself. Uh, she disappeared 1892, was never seen again, and he, he was also fairly consistent that she died after an abortion as well. And he continued to, to correspond with her, her family long after her. Yeah, he did. He would, uh, he, would, he would write both to her family and Julia's family. He would write, say, hey, have you seen her around any? I, need, I have some paperwork I need her to sign. You know, you know, I haven't asked you, what did Holmes look like? I mean, if you were meeting him for the first time, what would your perception of him be? Well, our perception of what's attractive and what's not um, has alters a little bit over time. Looking at photographs of him now, uh, he looks kind of sickly to me. He's a very uh, wiry, thin guy with a mustache that seems too big for his face. There's a photo of him from college when he looks like, you know, an attractive young man with uh, curly hair and a mustache, about like every other person at the time. Uh, and his, uh, later, in his later ones, he looks like he's got some disease to me. And possibly he did. A doctor said he seemed like the type to have tuberculosis. And pretty consistent among period accounts of him. People who would encounter him would notice that he would never look them in the eye. Is that right? Yeah. According to two different doctors who examined him, he said he had strabismus of the left eye, which is a fancy way of saying he was cross-eyed. Um, Holmes said he'd been troubled with that for years, and it is something you notice over and over in uh, people talking about him after he was caught, even going back to when he was a kid. People say, I knew you couldn't really trust that guy because he could never look you right in the eye. But, you know, he, he genuinely couldn't. Regardless of his off-putting appearance, he, he still managed to woo more than his share of women. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, he did. In fact, his third wife had some kind of problem with her eye, with her eyes of her own. She had a, I, I can't remember the name of what we, of what we think it is, maybe Graves' disease, I think. Uh, her mother said it was a goiter behind her eyes that caused them to look like they were bugging out. Huh. So they might have had that to bond over. 
So I'd like to ask you about Holmes' preparations for the Chicago World's Fair. And it's during this time that he meets Minnie and Nanny Williams, right? Yeah. Well, sort of. Minnie was a woman who moved to Chicago about early 1893. She'd been, she was a former aspiring actress who decided it was time to give up on her dreams and get a real job. And there might be a lesson here, because as soon as she gave up on her dreams to get a real job, she fell into the hands of H.H. H. Holmes. Um, she got a, a job working in the working around the office for him, happened to own some property down south. Uh, right around this time, as they were working on adding a third story onto the building, we were about to have a giant World's Fair in Chicago, and everybody in Chicago who owned a business thought they were going to get rich off of the fair. Which is reasonable enough, you know, like millions of people are going to be coming to town. I remember being in Atlanta in the build up to the 96 Olympics. Everybody had a plan to get rich. Everybody was hearing rumors about people getting their houses rented for a million dollars and stuff like that. So Holmes decided he was going to add a third story out of the building to be a hotel. But I don't think he ever really intended to actually run it as a hotel. By that time, he'd been uh, involved in so many swindles and schemes and buying things on credit and not paying for them that he probably realized that you could make a lot more money pretending you were going to open a hotel than you could by actually running the hotel. So he um, started a corporation called the Campbell Yates Company. H.S. Uh, Campbell was his newest alias. He typed up a whole bunch of letters saying, Dear gentlemen, please give this guy H.H. Holmes all of your stuff on credit for use in the building at uh, 701 63rd. I will guarantee credit uh, payment as owner of the building. Sincerely, H.S. Campbell. And everybody else was so eager to get rich off of the fair that that one typed letter was good enough for them to give this guy all kinds of goods on credit. He used that to get hardware from the hardware company. He got flooring. He got construction materials. He got mattresses. He got bedding. He got crockery. He got furniture from the Toby Furniture Company. Uh, over and over, he went around using these letters and got all kinds of stuff for building a third story in the building. But really, he'd also borrowed about $3,000 as an investment from Dr. Lawrence that was supposed to help to build it. Um, I don't know how much he actually spent building that third story, but it wasn't $3,000. Uh, by all accounts, the third story that he built was uh, a complete junk pile. I, I, I sometimes say that it was almost like he had put up a, a paper mache facade to look like a third story just to satisfy the investors. Uh, he was never really getting it furnished. All of the furniture he was getting, he was just hiding in one of the hidden rooms or wallpapering over. For an existing room, uh, so you couldn't see the door, and uh, selling the stuff for cash when he could. Uh, furthermore, he had taken out four or five different insurance policies on the place. So strangely enough, in August of uh, August of 1893, right in the middle of the fair, there was a big fire on the third floor. Holmes presented himself at all of the insurance companies, uh, ready to get the insurance money, but all of them saw right through it. But a curious thing is that one of the insurance companies, uh, he needed uh, to bring in Minnie Williams as a co-signer on the insurance plan. So a woman uh, presenting herself as Minnie Williams came and gave the signature. But by that point, Minnie Williams had probably been dead for about six weeks. She had disappeared uh, around, around the 4th of July of 1893. She had been living as though she was married to Holmes. She might have thought she was married to Holmes. They might have had a sort of a, uh, he might have set up like a sham wedding ceremony. He had rented a house up in Wrightwood where Minnie was living along with her sister, Nanny, her long lost kid sister that she hadn't really grown up with, had come to live with them. Uh, she knew Holmes under the name of Harry Gordon. 
It's entirely possible she was trying to swindle the sister herself a little bit. Um, she didn't really know Nanny all that well. She seems to have been a little bit more aware of what was going on with all the swindles and schemes than a lot of the other uh, people around Holmes were. I think maybe she was trying to get money to restart her acting career. But the two of them both disappeared in uh, July of 1893. Um, Holmes now suddenly claimed that he owned all of the uh, land that, that Minnie had owned back in Fort Worth, Texas. Do you suspect that Holmes had a relationship with, with both of these sisters? It's entirely possible. But it's also entirely possible that um, that he really didn't, that he that she wasn't remotely interested in him, but was uh, using him to get, you know, probably possibly to get her sister out of the way for one reason or another, to get money herself. Well, one thing we do know is there's this letter that... Nanny's uh, aunt received so right before Minnie, uh, right before they disappeared. She wrote this letter saying, "Hey, we're going off to Europe now, so you won't hear from me for a long time. But everything is going to be wonderful. We're um, Minnie and Nanny, uh, Minnie and Mister Doctor Gordon are getting married. They're going to send me off to Europe to study art. So don't worry if you don't hear from me." So, which was an awfully convenient sounding thing to say. In fact, it's it's so convenient in the letter that I strongly suspect the whole thing was a forgery. And we, the, the original copy, like the handwritten version, isn't known to survive. There's just a lot of copies in newspapers. Um, the ones in the Texas papers, I have a couple of lines that the Chicago ones don't. But if we could compare the handwriting, I would strongly suspect it was not really Nanny's. I don't know that Holmes could plausibly uh, fake the handwriting himself and not be suspected. He would have probably had to have Minnie do it. But that's just, that's just kind of wild speculating at this point, though. Sure, sure. And you write in your book how impressive the building looked from the outside, which, which was the whole point of it, right? It, it made the building look a lot better, yeah, for a while. <laughs> yeah. So Holmes eventually bails out of Chicago, doesn't he? Yeah. The, the, well, the insurance companies had all figured out what was going on at that point. Um, when, the, when that building caught fire, none of them believed that it was just an accident. They all assumed that it was arson. He spent the next few months kind of ducking around Chicago trying to stay away from them. And then somebody told him that you could only get arrested for arson for one year. There was a short statute of limitations. So between that and the other creditors breathing down his neck, he decided, okay, you know, I've got this new plot of land in, uh, in Fort Worth that I bought from Minnie Williams for a dollar. Uh, so why don't I go down to Fort Worth and uh, build some new property there? So he and one of his partners, Benjamin Peitzel, uh, went down to Fort Worth and built a whole other building. Also, he got married again. And he never collected any of that insurance money from the fire, right? Not that anyone knows of. There were a couple of people who said who at the time who believed that he did get some of the money, but most of the insurance most of the uh, insurance companies all refused to pay it. There's boxes of paperwork over this, and uh, most of the neighbors said, "Yeah, he probably never collected a nickel of that insurance money." So he has an, another scheme in mind when he gets to Fort Worth. He has another use for this land, similar to the to the land that he had used for his Chicago murder castle. Yeah, he built a, he built a whole other building, which was uh, basically just, um, in terms of the visuals, it looked just like a larger version of the castle back in Chicago. But it was the same thing. He was uh, buying up materials on credit and not paying for them, uh, not paying the workers, you know, all the, uh, all the tricks he had perfected back in Chicago. And I kind of think that when he was in Texas, it was almost like he decided he was going to go be a Wild West outlaw. 
He started calling himself Mr. Howard, which was Jesse James's old nickname. He told his uh, new wife that they had to stay off of his uncle's ranch because there were murderous squatters, which is why he had to use a whole other name. Um, he got involved in the horse swindles after a while. But the uh, Texas authorities were a little more vigilant. When he wasn't paying his bills, they started coming after him a lot faster. And really shortly after the building was finished in around uh, late spring, early summer of 1895, um, 1894, um, he just got out of town, headed out to St. Louis instead. We will be right back. The storm broke in Chattanooga one night in 1906 when a young woman was the victim of a violent crime. From that moment, the city knew no peace for four furious years. At the center of the storm was the notorious inmate, Dave Edwards, who was awaiting trial on murder charges. After a high-profile case threatened to go cold, the desperate county sheriff did the unthinkable by freeing Dave Edwards from jail and deputizing him to track down the fugitive. Grievous Deeds, Four Years of Fury in Chattanooga, Tennessee, written by Kimberly Tilly, narrated by Samuel Burst, is the most amazing true crime story you've never heard. Listen to Grievous Deeds, the audiobook, available on Audible, iTunes, and Amazon. When Johann Rahl received the letter on Christmas Day, 1776, he put it away to read later. Maybe he thought it was a season's greeting and wanted to save it for the fireside. But what it actually was, was a warning, delivered to the Hessian colonel, letting him know that General George Washington was crossing the Delaware and would soon attack his forces. The next day, when Rawl lost the Battle of Trenton and died from two Colonial Boxing Day musket balls, the letter was found, unopened in his vest pocket. As someone with 15,000 unread emails in his inbox, I feel like there's a lesson there. Oh well, this is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Every episode, we look at the bad ideas, mistakes, and accidents that misshaped our world. Find us at constantpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course, you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. They've done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, 
What made the Vikings go berserk? And can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. And we have returned. I'm guessing that the reason things worked for him so well in Chicago was, was because Chicago was such a large, sprawling city. Fort Worth was a much smaller, harder place to hide in. Yeah. Yeah, Fort, Fort Worth was an awful lot smaller back then, for sure. So where does he go once he's smoked out of Fort Worth? Well, he went to St. Louis for a while. He uh, swindled his way into owning another drugstore. But again, the paperwork didn't really go through. They, he got caught pretty quickly. And this time he ended up being in jail for a while. But while he was in jail, he ended up sharing a cell with this guy, Marion Hedgepath, who was a fairly famous train robber. And, you know, he had robbed the Glendale train a while ago, the same one Jesse James robbed. So here, I think Holmes was completely starstruck. He'd been going around using the same name Jesse James used. Now, here's a guy who would rob the same train Jesse James had. So while he was in prison, he, like, tried to recruit Hedgepad. He's like, hey, why don't you, uh, why don't I help you get out of prison? Then you can move off to Berlin with me. And he told him this big plan he had that he was going to defraud an insurance company. He said he and his friend Ben Peitzel had this whole thing planned out. They'd got a $10,000 life insurance policy on him. In a couple of months, they were going to go to Philadelphia and fake Peitzel's death. They'd find a dead body that looked like him, say it was him, take the life insurance money and run. Hedgepeth was uh, not really buying the whole plan. Uh, so as Holmes left town, he uh, ratted him out, thinking he would help him get, get released early. And I'm not really sure if Holmes ever really planned the fake Peitzel's death. That might have been the plan initially. But for one reason or another, possibly Peitzel drinking too much, he decided the best thing to do was just kill Peitzel. So when they got to Philadelphia in September of 1893, uh, 1894, he killed Benjamin uh took off back to the Midwest, then wrote to the insurance company and said, hey, that guy who was living under the name B.F. Perry and was uh, buried recently in Philadelphia, that's really Benjamin Peitzel. You owe his widow $10,000. I'd like to ask you um, about Benjamin Peitzel. He's a pretty important character in this story. Can you talk a little more about his background and more specifically, how he meets Holmes and how their relationship develops. Yeah. Well, one of uh, Holmes's early schemes back in Chicago and back in the early 1890s was uh, pretending to start a glass bending company. Uh, he and this guy, L.W. Warner, had gone in together and said, we've started this Warner glass bending company. I don't think they ever actually bent any glass. They just took out an office in a place called the Chemical Bank Building and started meeting with investors. Uh, meanwhile, elsewhere in the chemical bank building, there was a guy named Benjamin Peitzel uh, demonstrating an invention he'd made of a, a patent Colbin. It was some kind of Colbin that you could keep in your house and it wouldn't get dust all over the carpet. Uh, apparently, they struck up an acquaintance there and realized they both had kind of an affinity for dishonest business practices. Uh, Holmes got him involved in several different swindles. Uh, Peitzel had been... Was, was a family man who'd been bumming from job to job. He was a part-time inventor. He was a part-time novelty dealer. He'd been a salesman for a while. Um, in 1893, he got caught in Terre Haute, Indiana, passing bad checks and made a lot of news at the time. At the time, he as of uh, early 1894, he was a much more famous criminal than Holmes was. Uh, he'd been all over the papers, all over the country for this check-passing scheme, but Holmes had helped get him out of prison and possibly at that point said, oh, in return, you're going to go in with me on this scheme uh, to fake your death. So once he murders Peitzel, he, he's not finished with the Peitzel family, is he? Right. He uh, he, uh, he uh, brings Alice, uh, Peitzel's oldest daughter, who was about, uh, I think, 14 years old at the time, 14 to 16 years old, somewhere in there. Uh, 
brought her out to uh, Philadelphia to help identify the body. The body was dug up um, at the Potter's Field out in Philadelphia. Holmes and a couple of doctors examined it. They covered up everything but the teeth, so that was all that Alice had to see. But then he started traveling around the country with her, and along the way he picked up her sister Nellie and her brother Howard, and was starting to travel around with them, too. Meanwhile, he had uh, Carrie Feitzel, Benjamin's wife, and a couple of the other kids in a whole other train car. And Georgiana, his latest wife, was traveling around in yet another train car. So often they were all in the same city, but Mrs. Peitzel and her children didn't know that the other were in the same city. Georgiana had no idea that anybody else was getting ferried around at all. And somewhere along the line, he decided he had to get rid of the Peitzel kids. They knew too much. He was still uh, planning to tell everybody that Peitzel had faked his death if he was ever caught. And Alice knew the truth. She had probably told her siblings the truth. So over the course of the uh, meanderings, Howard uh, disappeared from the journey outside of Indianapolis, and moving around the they were he was moving around the country by now because he knew he was being followed by the police. Uh, he didn't know by this time exactly why they were following him around because there was you know so many different reasons it might have been, but he knew he was being shadowed by detectives. So he kept going from city to city to city. Um, and eventually he even went back to New Hampshire and had a meeting with his old family again. He just showed up and said, hey, everybody, I'm back. Sorry, I haven't been around since, uh, what, October of 88. But here's the thing. I got hit in the head with a brick in a railroad accident, and I got amnesia. And he was passing out enough money at the time that people went ahead and went along with this story. <laughs> but then the uh, the uh, detectives had traced him to Boston. He was arrested in Boston Um and immediately became this national media sensation. Before he was even suspected of murder, people were calling him the king of criminals for this plan to defraud the insurance company at $10,000. Something about that really captured people's imagination at the time. What was the purpose of hauling the Peitzel children around the country for so long? I mean, why not kill them earlier? I don't know. I don't know if he really decided early on that he had to kill them or if he thought he was just going to travel around with them a little while. Uh, his exact motives for what was going on during that whole time is really kind of obscure. It would have been a lot easier just to kill them all at once, frankly. And honestly, he did a really bad job of getting rid of the bodies. But the, I think one of the major things was just that he was being uh, was, was being shadowed by detectives and getting rather paranoid about it, I think. What knowledge do you have about the relationship he was having with these kids? D- did they look up to him? Were they getting along okay on their travels? Uh, I think they got along with him okay. Uh Alice uh, didn't like him much, but, you know, he was just, you know, a friend, you know, the kind of guy that you might find in charge of you now and then as a kid, you know, just a friend of your parents that you might not like that much, but he's in charge of getting you across the country. And for the most part, he would just uh, go to see them briefly at whatever hotel he put them up at to maybe take them to the zoo or something and then go back to his own hotel. They didn't really see him much. They spent most of their time holed up in the hotel getting on each other's nerves. I just find that part of the story the strangest of all, you know? <laughs> yeah, it's, it, gets a little, it gets a little bizarre right there, exactly what was going through his head and why he was acting the way he was. I mean, the district attorney had some theories about it, but I'm, not, I'm really not sure what he was on about. Yeah, I, I'd love it if you could talk a little more about Holmes' capture. He was caught by Pinkertons, wasn't he? Uh, there was a figure in a man present. Uh, he had this guy back in Chicago named uh, Frank Blackman. He was a, a money lender first and foremost at an office like two doors down from the building where the uh, where the chemical bank building was. Um, but he was also kind of acting like a switchboard for Holmes. Wherever Holmes went, Holmes would tell people, you can send me any message you want to, just send it to 69 Dearborn Street, Chicago. And 
he was always uh, writing letters to, to Blackman telling him where he was at any given time. So anytime Blackman got a letter to somebody whose name he didn't recognize, he would just forward it over wherever Holmes was. And the uh, Pinkerton men, the detectives, found out about this and were able to trace his movements based on that. And were, that's how they were able to find he was in Boston. Now, in Boston, by this time, the insurance company, the reason he was being followed mainly is the insurance company had put two and two together. They realized, you know, this guy's a known swindler. Uh, maybe that wasn't really Benjamin Peitzel in the grave after all. So they got a coroner's warrant who said, okay, maybe we're just going mostly by this guy's, uh, by this guy's say so. Maybe that wasn't really him. Um, for some reason, the Boston police didn't want to act on a coroner's warrant, but they also found out that Holmes was wanted as a, for a horse swindle in Texas. So they approached him in Boston and arrested him as a horse thief. But as soon as Holmes got to the uh, police station, he found he saw the uh, president of the insurance company sitting around and realized what was really happening. And he like cheerfully offers, like, hey, there's no way I want to go to Texas and stand trial as a horse thief. Why don't you just send me up to Philadelphia to stand trial as, insurance, as an insurance fraudster? I am, in fact, a big insurance fraudster. And he immediately uh, made a confession, pleaded guilty, told all kinds of stories about all the times he defrauded the insurance companies over the years, uh, mostly wildly exaggerated. Where, where did they find him in Boston? Uh, just coming out of a house. Oh, okay. Yeah, he wasn't like he, he wasn't like in a spider hole or anything. Could you talk about Holmes during his incarceration? What were the conditions of his imprisonment, and what was his mood? Uh, kind of difficult to tell what his mood was at the time. Um, he always seemed to be fairly, you know, put on a fairly optimistic front, uh, for the, for the most part. Uh, he was, uh, generally in solitary confinement, but he, you know, he got to wear his own street clothes and everything. It wasn't like he was wearing a striped prison suit or beating on rocks or anything. He was mostly just sitting around in his cell, uh, meeting with his lawyers mostly. He had, he had a real, uh, a real, uh, character for a lawyer, this guy, William Shoemaker. I couldn't write this guy into a novel and expect anybody to believe it. Uh, Shoemaker was, uh, kid in his early twenties, uh, showed up at the press, at the police station one day and said, okay, I'm going to be Holmes' lawyer. This mysterious man with a beard came to my office in the middle of the night last night and gave me money to retain my services as his lawyer. At various times, he uh, broadly hinted that the uh, mysterious stranger was Benjamin Harrison, the former president. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he had been in the news once before. He had uh, he and some spiritualist medium had been caught breaking into a uh, breaking into a house where a murder had taken place to try to talk to the murder woman's ghost to uh, break that case wide open. Both completely drunk at the time, too, <laughs> um, and ended up providing really incompetent counsel to Holmes. Uh, he had a partner, Samuel Rotan, who was a much more competent lawyer than he was. He was also just a kid in his early 20s, was badly outclassed and badly outspent by the Commonwealth, but wasn't lacking in talent, at least. Uh, during the trial, Shoemaker made a complete idiot of himself. At one point, he ran into it while uh, Rotan was giving a speech, said, Your Honor, we object. Everyone kind of paused and said, uh, Your side is talking. Do you object to your own testimony? <laughs> And then the day of the closing speeches, he was found uh, passed out, uh, passed out, probably drunk again on a nearby drugstore floor. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that was the guy Holmes spent most of his time talking to, the guy who made a lot of statements for Holmes, uh, a lot of statements that he made on Holmes' behalf. Out-of-town papers would rewrite his first-hand accounts of things, of uh, first-hand quotes. So you're referring to his trial for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. Oh yeah, that was that was yeah, it was his second trial. Initially, he was put on trial just brief, just briefly as an insurance fraudster, which he happily admitted to. 
At the time, he was saying, okay, that really was Benjamin Feitzel's body, but it was a suicide. I just rearranged the body to make it look like an accident so the insurance company would pay up. And he pleaded guilty to that, but before he could be sentenced, the uh, district attorney brought him in and said, okay, so Holmes, initially you told us that these kids were, that these kids who were traveling with you were now hiding out with their father someplace. But now you said the father is dead. He said, oh, well, the thing is, I gave them over to this woman, Minnie Williams. She's taken them over to London. If you leave a coded message in the advertisements of the New York Herald, maybe she'll see it. I think they can get the Herald over there. So a message was duly placed, but nobody really believed him at this point. The district attorney flat out said, I think you killed those kids. So they put a detective on the case, a guy named Frank Geyer, who's uh, traced Holmes' footprints all around the all around the Midwest, all around North America and Canada, where he'd been traveling around with these kids. Then, after about a month of searching, in July of 1895, he uh, found Alice and Nellie, the two girls, or what was left of them, buried in a shallow grave in a cellar in Toronto. Incredible! How did he find him? I mean, that's pretty crack detective work. He'd been he'd been he'd been a uh, yeah, he'd been going around to all the places Holmes was known to have been. Um, a lot, a lot of play, a lot of people who who ran the hotels he'd been in had already been to talk to the talk to the press by then. So a lot of this was already written down. He went and interviewed everybody. Finally, found that somebody matching Holmes' description had rented this house up on Saint Vincent Street in Toronto. Went there. I think he just uh, just talked to the people and found that there was this horrible stench coming out of the cellar all the time. And digging down a few feet in the cellar, he did find, um, they found, he found what was left of the girls. Does he make his discovery after Holmes is convicted? He, after he's convicted of insurance fraud. But once they, once they find the bodies, people realize that this is, okay, this is not uh, just an insurance fraud case, it is definitely a murder case. So, he, uh, at this point, people remembered, hey, didn't he have this building back in Chicago that was supposed to be full of hidden rooms where he was hiding stolen furniture? Because that had actually made the newspapers back in 1893. And they thought about that before, too. Back in that, when Holmes was first caught and he was first in the news, a lot of people thought, hey, didn't he have this building full of hidden rooms? Don't you think we ought to investigate that? Then after a couple of days, everyone went, nah. But after the bodies were found in Toronto, everybody remembered again. And this time, the uh, chief of police of Philadelphia immediately wired the chief of police in Chicago, said, get into that building, see what you can find. And this kicked off about a three-week investigation where they went poking around looking for clues and looking for evidence all over this building, digging up the basement, uh, finding what was left of his old gas generator scheme, finding uh, all of the hidden rooms and hidden passages. Now, it should be pointed out, we had this new police chief at the time, this guy, Chief John Badenoch. Three months before all of this started out, John Badenoch had been selling animal feed for a living. He had no legal training. He had never been a cop. He had no, nothing in criminology, nothing in forensics, um, nothing that would qualify him to be chief of police. But the new mayor liked the cut of his jib. So it was a strictly political appointment, and once, this, once they started breaking into this building, he decided he had solved every murder of the last ten years. Um, the, of course, the reporters in Chicago eagerly went along with this for a while, and for a couple of weeks they went through a whole thing where they were saying, all right, we found a rope. He must have been hanging people. We found a bench. Maybe that was a dissection table. We found uh, weird ashes in the stove. Maybe these are human ashes. And they did find a couple of, uh, of things. They did find some bones down in the basement that were quite likely the bones of Julia and Pearl Connor. 
But for a couple of weeks, their imagination just started to run away with them. And eventually the Chicago papers started saying, you know, the police are really making fools of themselves here. We've dug and we've dug and we've dug, and they haven't found anything that we could use to put Holmes on trial here in Chicago. And it's during this time that, that one of the Chicago newspapers makes their famous illustration of the, the murder castle with all of its clever... Well, it was, it was actually... Well, it was actually a New York paper that did that. Oh, okay. There was a, yeah, it was actually a, quite a while after, after the Chicago store papers had kind of given up on the whole thing. And the last straw was the guy who claimed that he was a skeleton articulator, that he used to buy dead bodies from homes to turn into skeletons to sell to medical schools, which, after some fact-checking, it became fairly apparent that this was just a guy that the police had found who would say anything they wanted, wanted him to if they poured enough whiskey down his throat. And... And after that, the Chicago papers almost completely dropped the whole thing, and they started saying, "You know, the police have made fools of themselves. We've all been taken in by this uh, by this uh, wild story." A couple weeks after that, or right around the same time, I guess it wasn't too too much longer. A uh, paper called the New York World, out in New York, published on like page forty of their Sunday Magazine issue. They published uh, this article, "The Castle of a Modern Bluebeard." Which uh, is which is the main source of uh, of material for the Holmes legend as we know it today. It was Herbert Asbury's major source when he was doing uh, the Gangs of Chicago book. Um, for one thing, they do have this diagram where they've given all the, all the uh, rooms on the second floor names like the Room of the Three Corpses, the uh, Asphyxiation Chamber, the Death Shaft, the Black Closet, the Maze, and... Uh, things like that. Also, but in their article, they also uh, talk about it being a hotel and have this line about, uh, so how many people came to the World's Fair and wandered their way into this castle? The list of people who had disappeared out of Chicago was a long one. Uh, it's, not verbatim, it's not verbatim, but that one paragraph is uh, quoted verbatim in Herbert Asbury's book. It's quoted verbatim in uh, Devil in the White City. It became really the basis of the uh, of the Holmes legend, and it really was just uh, a tabloid filling space, uh, unaware of the fact that the hotel had never really been completed or open for business. So let me get the the timeline correct here. So Holmes is tried for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel. Yeah, that's 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 about two months after all of this. Okay. The the, the following all, all the investigation in that diagram came out over the summer. Uh, late October, he goes on trial just for the murder of Benjamin Peitzel in Philadelphia. And he's known by every American at this point, right? The trial is pretty much over before it even begins, right? Every newspaper has been covering this, yeah. There was even one of the jurors later who made a comment to that effect. Like, you know, maybe they didn't really prove that he killed Ben Peitzel. We'd already heard all these stories about this guy. One of the most interesting parts of all of this was his defense strategy. Can you explain what his defense attorneys came up with? Yeah, well, the, uh, well, the, prosecu- the prosecution made their case. Um, they made their case. They established that the, based on the condition of the body of Benjamin Peitzel, it almost couldn't have been a suicide. It must have been a murder. And they further established that Holmes had been seen walking around the house once. But that's about it. Uh, to, actually, to be able to make, say that he was the murderer just because he'd been in the house one time is frankly kind of a stretch. So the defense decided, after the prosecution made their case, the defense decided not to enter one at all. They said that the prosecution has done such a bad job of proving that Benjamin Peitzel was murdered by H.H. Holmes. Uh, we'll just rest our case immediately. They were quitting while they were ahead, basically. And a lot of legal analysts who were watching the case said it was probably the strongest hand they could have played. But it, did, but it didn't work. The jury still decided, the jury still decided to convict on a very short vote. 
So they find Peitzel's children dead, and, and it's obvious that Holmes had something to do with it. Was there ever any chatter about trying him for those murders too, or was the point moot because he was already sentenced to death? At that point, the point was moot. Yeah, the uh, prosecution had tried to bring that up in the Philadelphia trial, but the judge ruled that it was neither here nor there. Had he been acquitted in Philadelphia, they would have brought him, I'd say probably first to Irvington, Indiana, where Howard had been, eventually, was eventually found, the boy. Uh, had he miraculously somehow been acquitted in, in Indiana, they would have sent him to Toronto to stand trial for the, uh, extradited him up to Toronto to stand trial for the girl's murder. Um, but since he had been convicted and was already sentenced to be hanged, it was just kind of considered a waste of everybody's time to actually have him go out there and stand trial for those things. So how does Holmes handle the verdict? What does he do once he's sentenced? Well, first he spends a few months uh, working his butt off trying to get a new trial and writing a couple of articles, one for the New York World, one for the New York Journal, trying to explain, here's what really happened with the kids, and blaming the whole thing on some mysterious man named Edward Hatch, who was now off in hiding with Minnie Williams someplace. Uh, he did make an interesting point in one of them. He says, you know, I'm supposed to be this criminal mastermind, or at least a very intelligent man. You really think a smart person would have buried bodies so in such a lousy manner that they were certain to be found? I mean, the girls were buried in a shallow grave in the basement of a rental property. The fact that it took almost a year for them to be found is really kind of remarkable. It's kind of an interesting point on his part. It wasn't uh, the, the disposal of the bodies of those kids was incredibly sloppy. But later on, after all resources are exhausted and he's definitely going to be hanged, he finally takes up some newspapers offered to write a confession. He'd been offered like thousands of dollars for confessions. Well, here's a, it's, it's kind of an interesting chain of events is early in April of 1896, about a month before his execution, the same New York world put out a thing saying Holmes is about to confess to 20 murders. And it lists off uh, a couple of the different people that he was, he was going to be confessing to murder, including uh, Patrick Quinlan, the janitor at the castle, who anybody with even a casual interest in the case would have known was still alive at the time. And Holmes was in fact, uh, was in fact not writing a confession for the New York world. But once that came out, he was planning on writing a confession for a couple other people that were paying him. And once the, somebody had come out saying he was confessing to 20 people, he couldn't very well confess to fewer than that. So he uh, confessed to kill, having killed 27 people. But of the 27 he confessed to, quite a few of them were still alive. Uh, others were known to have died of natural causes. Uh, I think there's only one murder in there that he was probably telling the truth about, or you know, at least broadly telling the truth about. Even the ones when he was when he was really talking about people that he actually did murder, he wasn't telling the truth about how he did it. Often blatantly so. Do you think that once he resigned himself to death, that he just wanted to go out with a bang? Some, something like that. Once he, once he was definitely a criminal, he decided he was going to be the criminal. And also, you know, a lot of these things were, were would serve to send a police station off on wild goose chases. Like he said that there's a body buried underneath a cellar on Milwaukee Avenue in Chicago. You better believe the police were there the next day. And he was also doing things like bringing Frank Geyer into the uh, into into his cell and uh, sending him off on other wild goose chases, or like seeing showing that he'd covered the whole room in an astrological chart to show that he wouldn't be hanged. Uh, I think he just didn't have much better to do besides uh, messing with the police. So can you walk us through the day of his execution? What was it like? The uh, day of his execution, he had woke up and um, met with his lawyer a little bit. 
couple other officials came in. He had a, he had, had a meeting with uh, his lawyer and a lot of the prison officials and a, a collection agent from back in Chicago even all come in, came and uh, talked to him the night before. He wrote a bunch of letters, uh, including one to Chief Badenoch back in Chicago, one to Emmeline Segrand's parents, uh, claiming that he was going to clear up what really happened. But I, do, I don't think any of the letters survives in full. We just have a couple of excerpts and summaries of what they say. And they basically uh, just go back to saying Emmeline and Julia died during abortions. Um, he shaved off his beard, uh, went back to just having a mustache. He'd been wearing a beard for a while. Then at a later hour in the morning, they started letting in all the spectators. There were about 50 or 60 people who had gotten uh, admission tickets from the sheriff. Plus there were... Enough, like a, there was a regular jury brought in. There were a team of doctors. There were prison officials. Overall, about a hundred people came out. Uh, Holmes was accompanied by his lawyer and a couple of priests as he walked up onto the scaffold. They tied his arms behind his back. Uh, he made a little speech saying, "Once again, I didn't kill Benjamin Peitzel. I've only killed two women, uh, both of whom died during abortions." Uh, referring to Julia and Emmeline. And they put the hood over his face, as was standard protocol, and hanged him. So back when this American Ripper TV series came out last year, there was a, a lively discussion on the most notorious Facebook page about this. You, you participated in the show. What do you think about their premise that Holmes was actually Jack the Ripper? I, th- I thought it was rather a, a fairly ridiculous line of inquiry. That's uh, for about people have been talking about that for five or six years now. And, well, the number one thing for me, A, is that Holmes is not really the same type of killer that the River was. Uh, the people that he killed were people that he knew pretty well and probably killed all of them with poison, not with a violent berserker attack like the River. Uh, furthermore, I don't have any good data suggesting Holmes was ever overseas and uh, ample data suggesting that he was in Chicago uh, during the time of the River murders. Well, you know, if, you, if they've got their theory and want to do a show, you know, it's kind of up to them. And I, you know, I figured if, if they didn't use me, they'd use somebody worse. So. so I'd like to ask you about the idea of Holmes as a serial killer, which you write about in your book. Can you talk about your theories on this? Well, there's a, it depends on what you'd, how you define a serial killer. Holmes uh, killed a number of people over a period of time. Uh, but sometimes when we talk about serial killers, people mean a very specific mindset, the kind of person who kills over and over again uh, because he's driven to, because something for no particular motive, just because the voice in his head tells him to, he gets some kind of sexual satisfaction out of it. Um, by that kind of definition, I don't think Holmes really qualifies. Uh, the people that he killed were generally people that he needed out of the way. I don't think he got a particular amount of pleasure from it. Right. Well, this has been excellent. Where can people learn more about you and your work? If you go to adamchicago.com, that'll link you to all of my stuff, all of the tour companies that I run, Mysterious Chicago Tours, where I do a lot of different H.H. Holmes tours, in fact, Um, the Mysterious Chicago blog, where I cover a lot of Holmes data, and of course, links to the book as well. It's a really comprehensive book. How long did did it take you to research this thing? Well, I've been working on the case for, by the time I started the book, I've been researching Holmes for about 10 years. You don't look old in your, your photographs. <laughs> <laughs> 30, I was in my late 20s when I started. Okay, well, thanks again for your time today. It's been great. All right, thanks for having me. Again, I've been chatting with Adam Selzer, author of H.H. Holmes, The True History of the White City Devil. And employers, don't forget to go to ZipRecruiter.com slash most for free job postings. And to my dedicated listeners, you can get up-to-date information on Most Notorious from me on on Twitter at MostNotorious1 or by following my Most Notorious page on Facebook. 
This has been another episode of the Most Notorious Podcast, broadcasting to every dark and cobwebbed corner of the world. I'm Eric Rivenis, and have a safe tomorrow. <laughs>